This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. This is Alec Cowan. I'm a producer on Soundside. And today, for the Neighbors series, we're spending time with an iconic Puget Sound sea creature. No, not the orca, or the Dungeness crab, or the giant Pacific octopus. I'm talking about sea slugs. Or, if you want to use their scientific name, nudibranch. Sea slugs are pretty tiny. Some of them are just the size of a fingernail. That means they're easy to miss. As a result, there's a lot we don't know about them even though you can find them on pretty much any dock on Puget Sound. Earlier this year, I visited with a couple of community scientists who are working to learn all they can about sea slugs. I started by talking with Luann Roberts down at the Tacoma Narrows Marina. For the most part, I'm just taking photos of them. I try and avoid touching them as much as possible. If you do touch them, it's not likely to cause them harm unless you're rough, but I just don't like to interfere. A lot of the time I might be moving something closer to me, so it might be like a blade of kelp that I'm pulling closer to me. Or uh, a lot of the time if people leave ropes, then a lot of organisms will start to attach on there, and that's a really great place to find sea slugs. I'm not sure if the sea slug even knows that I'm there. I'm sure it knows something is there. What does a nudibranch look like? The most common nudibranch that I see out here, to the point where I feel like it should be a symbol for the Pacific Northwest, is the thickhorn nudibranch. And it looks like, if you imagine kind of the body shape of a typical slug, so it's elongated and it has oral tentacles, which are just these two projections that come from the front, and then two things that look kind of like eye stalks, but they're not eye stalks. They're called rhinophores that stick out from where its head is. And those are its sensory organs. And along its back are these projections, which I refer to as their frilly bits. The real name is serrata, and uh, they have kind of bright orange and white glow to them. And along the body of the slug itself is this kind of iridescent blue. So. When you see this out of the water, it doesn't look like much, but underwater, it, it, it kind of projects out into the water with all the tentacles the same way an anemone might. But then it has these very bright colors that kind of make it impossible not to look at. Your eye is very much drawn to it. And they do kind of glow almost like they have their own light, even though they don't. So I like to start here at this net. The cool thing about this location is they have these nets that run, they go from the bottom all the way to the top of the dock. And for me, that's like a super highway for the sea slugs. So I'm gonna see if I can find anything here. This is usually a really good spot. And I see a sea slug already. So this little guy right here, let's red-fingered Corifella. 
they are in the Atlantic and the Pacific, and there's some work being done on these guys to kind of differentiate uh, the Atlantic and the Pacific varieties. And then, see, we got another one right over here. This little guy. That kind of gives you an idea of the scale of things that we're looking at. He's just, and if I put him up to my finger, I can see he's only about 10 millimeters long. So these guys seem to be doing really good at the moment right now. Other times of year, you might only see a couple of them, but right now they seem to be in a bloom. So what is your origin story with sea slugs? How did you first come across them? I never really paid much attention to sea slugs. I was working through my master's of arts in biology, and I wanted to focus on connecting people to their local environment through tide pooling. As with most creatures during low tide, they're kind of uh, droopy and they aren't really in their, their best state because they're, they're in a state of distress when the water goes out. So you might find them in pools and, and see them kind of moving around, but for the most part, they just look like little kind of snotty things and you don't really pay them much attention. And I noticed that people had been taking photos of sea slugs and they looked a lot different to how I was used to experiencing them. They looked very colorful and majestic and exotic. And I had no idea what dock fouling meant. And when I Googled it, it just referred to the organisms that grow under floating docks. I met up with this person who was taking the sea slug photos down in the Bay Area. And she showed me how to find sea slugs off floating docks. And once I started looking around Puget Sound, I, I quickly realized that, that there probably weren't many other people kind of engaging with wildlife in this way. I, you kind of peer over and you see feather duster worms and anemones without even trying. But I think it, it really, it, it's that kind of almost like you have to get permission, not from any outside source, but somebody showing you like, oh, this is something that you can experience. The reason that this kind of growth is called fouling is because it's, it is a nuisance. It creates economic damage to boats because it can create drag and then they have to use more fuel. So a lot of this stuff is not wanted. Oh, I've got a good piece of kelp here. So this one doesn't look like it is gonna have much on there, but I just kind of pull it up and look at both sides of it to see if there's anything going on. You got just a tiny patch of tunicate on that one, but this is a great home for sea slugs. They could spend their entire lives on a piece of kelp like this. And it's always kind of cool to see little anemone adhering to it as well. But I can tell these are kind of at the end of their life cycle. It's all kind of dead and brown and mucky. Oh, we got one little sea slug here. It's a very small one. This is a thick horn nudibranch. Oh yeah, just waving in the wind there. <laughs> yes. What do nudibranchs do? Like, can you paint a picture for me of what life is like as a nudibranch? They basically just eat and reproduce. There's not much else to it. Almost all nudibranchs are predators, so they're feeding on other live animals. 
for the most part is going to be anemones and bryzoans and other kind of stationary creatures. So they mostly just spend their time eating and reproducing. They don't have very long life cycles, so there's not much else <laughs> that they can really accomplish. <laughs> the rainbow nudibranchs can actually swim once they get larger. They can possibly swim from like the bottom of the ocean to a dock, but for the most part, they're just going to stay in that little area their whole life. And I've been noticing the tattoo on your hand, um, and I'm curious what that is. Is that that's specifically for measuring organisms? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. In my photographs, I've always kind of had these issues with conveying scale. I would get the feedback from people uh, that they were very surprised at what size the creatures were that I were, was taking photos of. And I would always just kind of put my finger in the photo to try and convey that scale. But sometimes they're so small that your finger becomes this alien object and it, it doesn't provide the context that you really want it to. But with this, I know it's not, it's not going to be good enough for scientific accuracy. It's going to give you a good idea. And what, what, it does for me is it really helps tell the story of what size the creature is. I have pretty much tattoos of everything. My entire body is covered. I'm trying to fill in all the little spaces in between my other tattoos with little dock fouling creatures like sea slugs because then it, it kind of transforms me into the dock fouling. <laughs> You've been doing this for several years now. So how many sea slugs, nudibranchs have you found? How many have you photographed? So... Different species, I've probably uh, photographed about 60 different species of nudibranch. And um, I mean, a typical day for me, I'm taking anywhere from maybe 400 to 800 photos and usually seeing, if I'm lucky, I'm seeing it around 100 different individual organisms. On, on a quiet day, it might only be a handful of individuals. My name is Karen Fletcher, and I have been working on a nudibranch project for the past 12 years, and that's pretty much what I do. <laughs> yeah, and tell me more about that. What is that project? So because we live on Rich Passage, it's our front yard, I decided when we moved here in 2009 that I would go diving as often as I could and just count and catalog the nudibranchs that I see every time I dive. I was 43 at the time when I decided, let's take up scuba diving. At that time training, you do it in a wetsuit, so you're, you're cold and wet, and it is dark, and because you're learning how to dive, there's lots of kicking up of sand and stuff, so it's, there's <laughs> it's kind of amazing that anyone carries on after learning how to dive here because it is so cold and dark. But once you start seeing things, you see a fish or you see some an octopus, of course, you know, any of the big, amazing things that are underwater, it's like, wow. And things seem to be curious about you. The fish will swim up to you. The sea lions will swim up to you. They want to know what alien is in their world. It's, it is, it's, it's an alien world and it's so different from the top side that it it's like going to another planet just right out the front door i have seen 
just over, say, 62 different species. I do have favorites because there's a sort of seasonality to the species. And when, so when I start seeing certain species, it's like it's now spring underwater or it's now fall underwater. There's one, there's actually one, it's not real colorful. It, it's in fact, it's quite tiny, but it's, I'm always amazed I can find it and I'm always happy to see it because it means that it's spring and gonna be summer. The common name of it is a white-crested aeolid and that's all it is. It's a little tiny thing about maybe half a centimeter or so, very tiny and it has white crusting on it. And it's just, I, I just always enjoy finding them. Yeah, it's like the, um, like the turning of the leaves, it sounds like. Yeah. So can you put me in your shoes? Or, I mean, I guess in this scenario, it would be more like flippers, but w- what is it like beneath Puget Sound for those of us who haven't been able to see it before? So on a typical rainy gray day it's really fairly dark from the beginning of the dive you you don't get any help from the sun coming through the water so i've got a it's not a big light i wear it on my hand then i just start looking start looking for nudibranchs right away just immediately when i go underwater in say five to eight feet of water i just start looking because there's there are nudibranchs that are in very shallow water. And so I can start seeing them from the minute I go underwater <laughs> or, and if not, if they're, even if I don't, there's little crabs there and snails and gunnels, little eel like looking fish and crabs. There's lots of red rock crab and walking around hermit crabs, just doing going about their day so there's just a lot to see of of everything not just nudibranchs i mean you've got this really amazing scientific knowledge on how nudibranchs work um, how these ecosystems work you've been photographing and studying them for so many years i mean did you have a background in science before doing this kind of work or marine ecosystems anything like that no 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 i mean i always had an interest in biology. I mean, science is always very interesting to me and keeping track of, of things and seeing things change over time is, I just enjoy doing that. It's, I just as a hobby (laughs) or whatever. And so the first thing that happened was I was seeing species that I couldn't identify in the guidebooks. And so I started to get in touch with people who had spent their, you know, biology careers studying and writing about nudibranchs to ask them about the species I was seeing. And so through that, I actually started working with people who were doing research on finding new species as a byproduct of looking at nudibranchs. New new species are discovered. And so I've actually found new species out front that no one had seen before. And once you do that, it really is hard to stop. I mean, once, once you've, as a non-scientist, 
and you find a species that no one's ever seen before, then it's like, well, what else is out there that we don't know about? I mean, it's just, it is an amazing world underwater that I think people don't know much about because they don't live there. And if you do spend time underwater, you can hear certainly the impact of the ferries and some of the bigger boats. It's a, it's a real noisy place underwater. I think it feels sometimes, especially for hobbies like this, these kinds of places are hidden gems. And I can imagine in your case, I mean, you're trying to document species and you're doing community research. I'm wondering if they're shifting popularity, which you're really helping push by offering to help teach people how to find new to Bronx on docks. Like, I wonder if that makes the experience feel a little less intimate with sea slugs, the more that you bring people to it, the more that it's less a thing that that you specifically do? Yes and no. I I think the joy of sharing it with others kind of outweighs any kind of negative effects. And it's something that I've had a lot of discussions with, with the other people in the community is um, how we should try and foster the growth of it so it doesn't become something detrimental or unenjoyable. One of the things that's happened with tide pooling is people have posted photos on Instagram of tide pooling locations and that's attracted foragers to those spots and they've really become devastated and dock fouling is a bit different in that you're going to a place which already is kind of a human constructed environment it's it's very much a different place in people's minds and you don't have much control over that environment because the marina owner could decide to scrape the side of the docks. Those organisms are kind of only there at the the invitation of the people who control that area. So I'm less concerned about it than I would be about promoting something like tide pooling. But uh, I do think there is a bit of concern of how how big can this get with it still being an enjoyable activity? One thing that we've been considering in the community is putting out maybe like a code of ethics or uh, putting something with the posts that we're creating to say, here's some guidelines so that you don't harm the creatures. And another big aspect of it is that you're, you're in spaces where people live, like people live in their boats and marinas, and it's very important to be respectful of that too. And I think those are the, the major areas of concern is don't hurt the creatures and be respectful to people. And if we can keep doing that, then I don't see why there's any issue. Well, and it seems like what you're doing, kind of building this body of scientific knowledge through the community, it's really reliant on a community who might not be scientists. I guess when we think of crabs or salmon, for example, something where there's this infrastructure to track and measure the health of these sea creatures, of their populations, how they're doing... It doesn't seem like there's that level of infrastructure for new to Bronx. Like, it's up to people like you to, to spend time and go out and post to Instagram to bring awareness to these creatures because, I mean, I guess my question is, is anyone else doing that? No, no one else is really doing that. And I think a large part of that, they don't really have any discovered economic value. Whereas salmon, they, they have a, a big economic impact, especially to people who use them as a food source. And nobody's eating sea slugs. You can't eat them. Uh, so there's not much 
necessarily to be gained monetarily by studying them. And I think that's probably where us citizen scientists come in and we we fill that gap because we're we're passionate, not because we're trying to make some money off of them. So I think that's kind of what makes them special is they're just these kind of special things that exist that don't really have any value to anybody except for the people who can appreciate them for what they are. That was Luann Roberts. I also talked with Karen Fletcher. You can see some of the beautiful photos Karen and Luann have taken of Nudebronx over at KUOW.org. Next up, from our Neighbor series, we'll meet a South Seattle pastor who's figuring out how to deal with burnout. The Neighbors series was originally produced by the team that makes Soundside on the air Mondays through Thursdays on KUOW at noon and at 8 p.m. and wherever you get your podcasts. Today's story was produced by me. Soundside and KUOW Shorts are both productions of KUOW Puget Sound Public Radio. We're a proud member of the NPR Network. Subscribe to the KUOW Shorts feed for more short-run, locally produced audio series. This series was produced for KOW Shorts by Jeannie Yandel and Brandy Fullwood, with help from Hans Twite, Amelia Peacock, and Michaela Giannotti-Boyle. Brendan Sweeney is our Director of New Content and Innovation. Listen to more Neighbor Stories by subscribing to KOW Shorts wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Cowan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>